Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 46. My name is Owen Barder at the Centre for Global Development and our topic today is economic growth in Africa and why economists get Africa wrong. My guest is Morten Jervin. Morton is an economic historian at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He has a PhD from the London School of Economics and he works on the link between economic development and the history of colonial Africa. A couple of years ago, Morton grabbed the world's attention with his book Poor Numbers, which argued that we're being misled by bad development statistics. Morton is here today in the London offices of the Centre for Global Development, where he has been presenting his new book, published today, Africa, Why Economists Get It Wrong, which argues that mainstream economists have fundamentally misunderstood the growth performance of sub-Saharan Africa. He says the bottom line is there is no bottom billion. Morton, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you, Owen. Morton, your first book, let's, let's focus on this question of, of poor numbers. Um, you say that uh, there are a litany of reasons for thinking that the economic statistics that we work with are misleading. Can you explain why that is? Well, yeah, I fundamentally say that we have a knowledge problem. Um, which is much bigger than we, we would like to think, uh, that we know much less about economic development, poverty, economic growth in poor countries than we would like to think that we do. Um, I tend to say that our knowledge problem is doubly biased. We know less about uh, economics in poor countries, and we know less about the economics of poor people in those poor countries. So therefore, that knowledge problem is pretty serious, if you think about part development statistics as being an effort in, in, in aiding the, the effort of, of helping these people in these countries getting out of poverty. But, but surely if I download a data set from the World Bank, World Development Indicators, that's what people use to do economic analysis of developing countries. The World Bank is publishing that data. They've scrutinized it. They're publishing consistent data sets. I, isn't that the best information available isn't that good enough information to do analysis of what's happening in poor countries? Yeah, uh, well, it is perhaps the best available knowledge, but we, the way this knowledge is presented in a way that makes us think that we know much more than we do. Uh, so if, if you download that data set, you could easily get the impression of that you have labor statistics for all countries in the world, that you have poverty statistics for all countries in the world, uh, that you have economic growth statistics for all countries of the world and uh, access to clean water or infant mortality for all countries in the world, uh, not only in all countries, but even on an annual basis, and that somehow all these data are directly comparable. So that you d download the data set, you get the impression that these are all functionally equivalent knowledge units and you can, you can make a global comparison across. And isn't that true? No, it is not. Uh, a lot of these data are extrapolations. There are missing data, uh, which are reported as if there was data. A World Bank, uh, the World Bank monitors poverty in 70 or so countries. Uh, through, through the past uh, 25 years, it's only have had poverty data on, on sometimes less than half of, of these countries. Uh, recent World Bank study uh, reported uh, a serious uh, or acute data destitution for about half of these member countries which they purport to, to record poverty in. Yet we are presented by global and world headcounts of poverty as if these data were available. That's one side is, is poverty data. Other issues uh, pertain to, to the measurement of GDP, uh, gross domestic product, the total sum of goods and services produced or consumed in, in one country in one year which is used to, you know, uh, not only rank countries who should get aid, who shouldn't, who's been successful over the past 10 years, who hasn't. Uh, but it's also uh, used for most of our uh, metrics of, uh, you know, we want to say something about taxation, well, share of GDP. We want to say something about whether people are spending on education or so, well, well, share of GDP. And so poor numbers is fundamentally about that important big number. And I think uh, while we all know that this is a GDP is to measure GDP accurately is a, a moment is a 
big task to get that right, and surely it's a kind of an approximate, which depends on data availability and definitions. I think we were got really aware of the size of the knowledge problem when it was announced first in 2010 that Ghana doubled their GDP from when they rebased from 1993 to 2006 ben- benchmark year for how they measured GDP. And then last year, um, uh, when Nigeria changed their base year from uh, 1990 to 2010 and found out that uh, their GDP doubled, almost doubled as well. And Nigeria overnight outjumped South Africa as the richest country in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So let's focus on this GDP number, which, as you say, the measure of national income is is used in lots of ways. It's used to assess progress. It's used to assess um, how many, uh, how much poverty there is when we look at income per person and so on. Now, when I uh, began in the British Treasury, I learned that we measure GDP in three different ways. We we look at output, we look at income, and we look at expenditure. And then we, ideally, those three different ways of measuring GDP all add up to the same number because, in theory, those should all be the same. Uh, and there's usually a little bit of a residual that um, where these different estimates differ, and then we we average them all, but we pick one, and we that's our measure of national income. So. Why doesn't that work in sub-Saharan Africa? Why why can't we measure GDP accurately? Well, in theory, uh, it should work. Uh, but uh, it doesn't matter if you have a perfect index or perfectly designed uh, measurement uh, technology. It all depends about basic data availability. So let's, you know, if you do it uh, the expenditure way, uh, you think about it as uh, GDP equals uh, personal consumption, government consumption, investment, and plus-minus exports and imports. Uh, the problem for that type of estimation is, yeah, sure, you got some information on on uh, government expenditure, yeah? And, and yeah, on uh, investment, sure, you got some. You know some about the highways, the roads, the ports, and that stuff. But there is the headache that you miss out of all the rural house building, all the rural uh, road building, all planting of trees, uh, all those kind of things, tool improvements, uh, perhaps also missing a lot of purchases of cars and other things uh, that are in small and medium businesses. But let's disregard that. We have, have some information there. Export and imports. Well, that might be well measured in some places, like in Mauritius, in Uganda less well. They measure their trade in in Mombasa. That's a problem if you know where Mombasa is. Mombasa is in Kenya, and uh, that's part of the colonial heritage, right? That <laughs> yeah. was it was set up to to yeah. to export from the East African community. Yeah, if, from the mind of a colonial administrator, anything by definition of importance has to pass through Mombasa. Uh, everything else was uh, not even footnotes, um, and so. That's, you know, so, but we have some, we, at least we have formal recorded data. But then on personal consumption, perhaps the most important bit, and which is the biggest bit in, in all the countries we know of, is not well measured. Some countries have not measured it. Uh, some countries might get data on it every five years. But it's not as if in Tanzania you can just pull this, this off the tax records and get the personal income returns and get some idea about the size of this. This has to be estimated uh, indirectly as a residual, as you say. But but this is not a new point, surely. We, I mean, in the UK, there's always been this question of where the boundary is. You know, mm. the, the famous quote, is it Pigu, who said, if you marry your cook, then GDP goes up. Yeah. Um, because, so GDP goes down at that point because what yeah. was a paid-for service when you when you were paying your cook yeah. becomes a, an, an intra-household transaction and it doesn't count as GDP. So the boundary of what counts as production has always been a contested issue in every country and since since GDP began and we know that we don't do a good enough job of measuring childcare and work in the household, for example, and there are lots of other services that don't get properly measured in GDP. Mm. How is that different from from what you're talking about? Well, I think that, yeah, it's it's uh, the, that paradox of uh, or the importance of the, the production boundary, as it's often called in national accounting, is there and it's in every country. And I think if we do debate GDP in, in Britain or in Norway or Canada, it is exactly the production boundary we would like to debate. Right. We want to know, should we include uh, uh, homemaking uh, as a part of uh, uh, economic services? Why is it counted towards GDP when you pay for someone to take care of your children? Well, it's not when, when you do it yourself. 
shouldn't leisure be valued uh, and so forth like that when uh, and this was well that point was well made uh, by Stiglitz et al in their uh, mismeasuring our lives report right. and there's but a famous it, Bobby Kennedy quote about it I think yeah yeah, yeah. and and so I think that uh, uh, that and I, one of the, the interesting things to take away from that report, I thought, for my purpose, was that they said that, well, you could make all these kind of adjustments to it, but then you would be measuring so much by proxy and so much by, uh, by assumption and not based on real data, so that the, the data themselves would be meaningless. Well, this is pretty much the, the situation in many of these countries which I've studied in, 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 on sub-Saharan Africa. So when... When, because we know so little of even this contested boundary, what was in it without, uh, it is then uh, a lot of measurement is going on by proxy. So the in- income and expenditure approach, there's simply not data that makes it feasible to, to measure it like that. Instead, you use the production approach. So you go down the sectors from agriculture, manufacturing, mining, transport, hotels, restaurants, services, and so forth. And in any given year, uh, you try to add up as much information as you have. Uh, and that's when you make a benchmark year. Yeah? And then in one year, you might then make an appropriate guess of the total size of value added in that economy. Next year, you will not have the time to do as a good job. Uh, or maybe there is no household survey. Or maybe there is no uh, agricultural uh, survey and so forth like that. So then you'll make shorthand guesses from year to year. And this might be okay... For in Ghana's case, this turned out to be okay in 94, 95, 96. Year 2000, it started to get seven years ago since they had an update and so forth like that. Then we come to 2010. They redid it and made a new benchmark with new better data and found out in the meantime they were guessing they lost track of half of the economy. The same thing happened in in Nigeria as well, uh, where they updated from, from 1990 to 2010 and found that uh, they've been missing a lot of data on the way. Definitions had changed and found that uh, the size of the economy was double. And that that makes mockery of reports written prior, uh, for instance, about what is the investment required in the Ghanaian agricultural sector in order to take them to middle-income status, when it turned out it was an accounting exercise. Uh, it makes mockery of, of uh, reports that try to tease out the... Uh, what's the the reason behind a 25% uh, income gap between Ni- Nigeria and Senegal and so forth like that? But so I want to understand: Are we saying? Are you saying that the data are highly uncertain? As a, if you take an estimate of GDP in a particular country, that mm. there's just a big margin of error that it could be out by quite a lot. Or are you saying that these numbers are in some sense biased, that they're systematically under-reporting or over-reporting the real level of of national income in in the country? I mean, it it seems to me that if if the problem is just that there's a bigger margin of error around these estimates than there is around estimates in Norway, Mm. I I feel I can live with that, right? Mm. It means I have to adjust my... um, I have to be careful about describing my results if I'm using that for research to to point out that there's a margin of error that could be affecting my conclusions. Mm. But it's still better than nothing, right, to be using that estimate. Or are you saying that these, these numbers are actually misleading us because they are systematically um, too high or too low? Well, uh, yes, for some numbers, it's true that you're just talking about bigger error margins. And if some of these error margins are so big that it makes comparisons unfeasible, and sometimes they're still able to do a little bit, depending very much what the kind of analysis or report you're, you're supposed to write. But there's also that misleading part where you think you have observations, data, things that are given when you actually don't. So that's what we talked about when there are observations in the Millennium Development uh, Monitoring Report or the World Development Indicators that are actually not observations. It's uh, um, borrowing data from neighboring countries, uh, drawing a regression line from the previous uh, two estimates. uh, Is that that unreasonable? If you've got two data points 10 years apart, is it unreasonable to fill in the gaps to interpolate. I, I, I see how extrapolation beyond the last point for which you have data is difficult, but is it well, really bad to interpolate the data? Well, it is. I mean, if you want, you know, you, you talk about poverty falling in sub-Saharan Africa uh, in, 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 
during Africa Rising, for instance, it would be inappropriate to use an extrapolation of a movement that goes between 2002 to 2008 to say something about what has happened in poverty since 2008. Right. Uh, because what we're interested in is how has the recent boom uh, affected economic growth? Uh, how has recent efforts by donors uh, targeting millennium development uh, goal number one affected this? Right. If, if the data is actually not related to things that are happening on the ground, but is statistically linked to previously found elasticities or predictable relationships between growth and poverty. So if your fundamental question is, does growth lead to poverty reduction? Surely you don't want to have a measurement of poverty where it is already assumed right. a constant right. relationship between poverty and growth. So, and so, so what if you've calculated the poverty numbers by assuming a relationship between growth and poverty, then you're always going to find a relationship between growth and poverty when you look for it. Yes. In the data. So, right. Yeah. So okay. there, and there are stories in academia of this all the time that, you know, uh, someone wanted to know what was driving agricultural uh, productivity uh, in, in a country for a certain time period. They used the perfect variable, all the nice variables about investment, labor, and, and weather. And they found out that they got, you know, 100% fit, which means that they just replicated exactly the way they estimated agricultural productivity at the statistical office. So, so sometimes uh, some of the, these definitions, because we don't have data, uh, sometimes these kind of uh, assumptions are being made. So I think at the statistical office. So I think maybe one of our most fundamental questions would be, what happens to the so-called informal or unrecorded economy when there is growth in the formal economy? That's the old question since the Lewis model, yeah? Unlimited supply of labor. Uh, and what happens to welfare, growth, and so forth during that process? And the big question is whether when the cocoa sector grew in Ivory Coast or Ghana uh, in, at certain points in time, did that harm the subsistence economy, the food economy, or did it have a positive feedback effect? And we can get these data sets and tease out all kinds of effects, but that's completely meaningless if the data was generated with a, with a firm assumption about this relationship to begin with. So it, that's where, one way in which we are misled by data, by no, not understanding how the data came to be there. So you say in the book, I was uh, struck by this, in, in poor numbers, we'll, we'll come to your n new book in a second, you yeah. say in poor numbers that some of the social statistics about things like infant mortality, and health conditions, who's going to school, those kinds of questions are getting better, while the economic data are um, not getting better or perhaps getting worse, the gaps are growing. That suggests that there's been some effect from donor countries on priorities for data collection and you know some of the problems of of growth and investment and agriculture data in developing countries is somehow the fault of bad decision making by donors can you say something about that well i think one has to be careful about when one talks normatively and when one talks talks descriptively about this um, so i think that descriptively saying there has been more uh there is clearly more poverty statistics now than ever before uh you know poverty Measuring poverty in sub-Saharan Africa is something we started to do in the 80s. Before that, we don't. So the history of poverty goes back to Ivory Coast in the mid-80s. Before that, we don't have poverty estimates, and we have them now. Uh, we have more than we used to have. We still have lacked them for about half, uh, and there's only 10 or so countries that have more than four, four or five, uh, uh, four or five uh, points in time to draw, draw a line from. Uh, there has been uh, one, the basic workhorse for any statistical office is the population census. Uh, so in colonial times, some places uh, had uh, censuses, but they were uh, had lots of problems with them. Uh, people tried very, uh, uh, very um, consciously to try to be avoid counted in some cases. They were unsure about what will happen to them if they were counted, and sometimes they were not counted at all. They were reported on the basis of of colonial administrators or or their uh, or their uh, indirect rulers, chiefs or other pi people who were in, in charge, um, then 
you have uh, uh, population census being instigated on a quite high basis in the 1960s, 1970s, but then capacity to do so uh, falls apart together with civil war and so forth like that, 80s, 90s. And then so in most recent census year or census decade is the most successful on record. That means that there is more population census is conducted. Uh, so yeah, there is more of that demographic social statistic. With the Millennium Development Goals, there has been an effort to collect more frequently uh, and on, on in more countries uh, on, on many of these things like maternal health, for instance, is a big one uh, where we did knew very little, uh, but now know much more. So descriptively, there's more data. Normatively, I'm happy to say that's good. Yeah. Uh, descriptively, there's less economic data than there was? Or it just hasn't grown as much as the well, social data? There is some... Uh, exactly to, to measure that perfectly uh, is, is, a, is a problem. But I would think that... Um, I think there is less uh, economic statistics available now than there were in the 60s. That's pretty clear. So one, one you know, there's a lot of suggestions for governance indicators out there. Uh, one kind of shorthand way of measuring what the state do and what the state knows about themselves and what they're interested in or how they're affected by donors' priorities is to bring a ruler to a well-stocked library. Let's go to London School of Economics. Go to the second floor, to the stats section there, bring a ruler, and then measure the length of statistical publications for each country. I promise you, Botswana is of meters and meters. Guinea-Bissau, very short. Now do the same exercise, now measure it by decades. You'll find that a country like Zambia has very few statistical publications uh, in the 80s and 90s. The lost decades are truly the lost decades. 60s and 70s, you have have, uh, lots of statistics. Again, now more and more publications coming out in in the later years. But then you start looking at what type of statistics you'll see. You'll see that uh, uh, industrial and labor statistics were important and prioritized in the 60s and 70s, disappears in the 80s and 90s, and then we have a short little burst of interest in the informal sector on recorded economy, the economic aspects of that, in the, in the 90s. But then, since then, it's been poverty, it's been social indicators and so forth, which means that we're better able to describe and also perhaps sometimes act upon poverty problems, maternal health problems, we might track where they are and which countries we should uh, use less resources on or so forth. But it also means that uh, central banks in Malawi uh, have little information to base their decisions upon what to do with interest rates and so forth like that. So let me just challenge you on whether this matters and yeah. then we'll move on to your, your new book. And uh, So part of me thinks, you know, of course it would be nice to have the public good of, of official data and statistics, we could make better decisions. But half of me thinks, well, you know, Britain had its industrial revolution long before the concept of GDP was invented. Sir Richard Stone began national accounts in the 1930s, and we did a lot of industrialization and a lot of, uh, a lot of improvements before then without having good statistics. So it's, it's clearly possible for countries to grow and, and succeed without having good data. And it's not obvious to me that you know, anywhere in the top 10 list of problems that many African countries face is that they don't have good enough data on which to fine-tune their economy. Uh, So, uh, you know, obviously it's bad for us as researchers and academics that Mm. this data don't exist, but but is this something that the world should care about as compared to lack of access to vaccines or lack of access to world markets because of trade restrictions? Well, Exactly where it should be on the priority agenda is has to be weighed up with a lot of factors, and I'm, I I don't think it would be not be very humble of me to to say that I know exactly how that priority look, list looks like. What I would like to point out is that, as you say, you know, it's perfectly feasible to to run a country without data. Uh, it's also even perfectly feasible to write a paper on poverty lines without having data either, which has been right. shown over and over again. Uh, but I do think that. It's important to know that you know when the data are actually not data, according to the definition of something that is given, it's useful to know that. I think that uh, there is a lot of uh, short-term and long-term thinking that needs to be taken seriously by, by uh, statistical offices and, and leaders of, of uh, emerging economies today. Uh, they ha- might have had informational, they might have informational gaps that are costing them. Uh, there might be data 
that are being produced because donors pay for them, uh, but other data such as unemployment. So, you know, president of Tanzania, Yaya Kikwete, is re-elected on the basis of promising to do something about unemployment. Yet there is no, no numbers on unemployment. Uh, so there is a, a. It's hard for me to to say exactly how this would matter, but surely it would facilitate some kind of debate, uh, which is currently being shortcut by by uh, the way in which uh, statistical priorities are defined and much and also how they're funded. Um, we talk a lot about accountability in development. Uh, I think it's kind of accountability and development statistics has been a bit lopsided in the sense that a lot of the statistics investment is being done for poor countries, being done in, in uh, Washington, D.C. and London for monitoring, uh, monitoring about whether what donors do and what whether their priorities are being met. It's a very different kind of accountability than what think tanks, members of parliaments, politicians and academics in Uganda and Tanzania would, would think about what accountability matters. So is the message that this might be different if donors were to provide funds for national statistical offices that enabled them not just to collect information that donors were interested in about school attendance, but also core uh, economic statistics that are a general public good? Is, is, is that the the policy conclusion that we should draw that just donors need to, you know, it's the usual prescription in development that we should do fund fewer projects and, and fund more institutions and program funding to enable these kind of core public goods to be delivered. Is, is, that, is that what we should conclude from this? That's one of the conclusions you, I think you should and you could uh, draw, draw from, from, uh, from my work. And uh, I think that uh, frequently you see... Uh, that there is negative consequences of project-based funding and statistical offices. And it, someone comes in the door with a big uh, bag of money and says, we have this survey, uh, we would like to have it done in nine months, here's uh, money for per diems. In effect, you're paying for statistical officers not to be at their desk, not to uh, analyze, uh, analyze and disseminate frequent data needed by the parliament or the central bank, uh, the central bank sits on the other side, frustrated, like they do in Malawi, that they haven't gotten data on electricity, cement, uh, for four years, whereas the, the donor gets their data through and their report through the door. Uh, and that's uh, an unintended consequence, I suppose, and something that should be relatively easy to coordinate if there was a will to do so. Uh, so I think, yeah, but the, the, of course, uh, the will to do this it's not only about funding, it's also about uh, political will in the country concerned. It's about the willingness to let the statistical office be independent, which is often isn't, uh, legally, uh, financially as well. Uh, you know, Ideally, maybe a statistical office funding should not be tied neither to donors nor to governments, but it should be like a university functioning as an, an endowment or so, of sorts. Um, so we have a theory about how a statistical office may facilitate, as you say, through a public debate, through providing public goods, uh, and also do a kind of a, 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 be an assurance of quality of some of that. Uh, at the current rate, uh, the statistical offices are not getting the space it needs to do that, not the funding, not the capacity know-how. I think it is possible to do much better. Uh, have one look at the central banks, Right. And, and their rise uh, to institutions we trust and do work and attract good human capital. We're able to get the same people working in these institutions for years and years. They're generating their own statistical capacity and so forth like that. That was a main focus in the, in the reforms of ensuring their independence because they were so centrally linked to, to uh, monetary theory at that time. So it was self-evidently possible. Meanwhile, we, we kind of did... Uh, all these reports and reforms on justifying poverty reduction and growth, growth, return to growth, uh, but did not spend uh, that much time, very little time and energy, to ensuring the same kind of funding and legal independence to provide le uh, reliable data to, 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 uh, to monitor this. I'd like to turn now to your new book, Congratulations, published today, Africa, Why Economists Get It Wrong. Um, and... Um, uh, I'd like to explore what it is that you think that the, and I think you're talking mainly about the macroeconomics profession, 
uh, what it is that uh, that we're getting wrong. And there's a conventional wisdom among development economists that most African countries have, on average, failed to grow as fast as uh, as the rest of the world. Um, and you say that this description of of the the failure of growth of Africa is is wrong. So why is why is that description wrong? It is um, yeah. So macroeconomists and particularly the the work that focus on the, analyzing Africa in a global context uh, using sample data on 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 all countries in the world, among them Africa, have gotten their analysis wrong uh, in in some very fundamental ways. And I think I was most strongly kind of way way of understanding that most clearly is the to go to the the Economist front page year two thousand. Uh, where Africa was depicted as the, the hopeless continent, uh, and it was asked whether they had a, a character flaw that kept it. Uh, African economies had a, a character flaw that kept it uh, incapable of economic development. And then, only 11 years later, uh, the tables had turned completely, and we had uh, the, the Economist saying um, uh, the hopeful continent. And you, you could, uh, you know, reasonably ask the Economist and their editors whether they had a character flaw that made them incapable of having a consistent judgment. But I would argue that that would be kind of unfair to The Economist because they were, in 1999, they were taking direct lessons and impetus from the mainstream economic growth literature. So they, not only in in 1999, did a survey of economic uh, growth literature to date describe Africa's growth uh, experience as a chronic failure, as latest in 2007, a famous book, Bottom Billion, uh, described uh, again, re-emphasized that the central problem of the bottom billion is that they never experienced economic growth. Right. And and then you start looking at the actual growth pattern. You know, so the problem. So we have we have uh, an economic economist. Uh, 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 economic literature that is able to explain why African economies are not growing. Yet we know that African economies, on average, has been growing for at, at least two decades uh, since the mid 1990s until now. Uh, we know that uh, also that African economies grew in the 50s and 60s. Do we do we know that African economies are growing now? I, th- I thought the our previous discussion was that we don't know enough about. I mean, are, are we? Are you confident that African economies are growing now? Yes. Okay. So we do. So they're growing now. Are you? I I thought from your book that you're also saying that even in the period when we were saying there was no growth in Africa, that actually what you had was periods of some growth and then falling back in the face of shocks. Is that is that a reasonable characterization? That, that and and those cycles were not being picked up in these long run averages. That's right. So there is. Um the problem of of the so the current knowledge problem is that yeah African economies have been growing uh, some of that much of that growth has been overstated yet there is still growth uh, so whether you should take it as a given that Ethiopia grows at twelve percent a year for the past decade I wouldn't think so maybe it's more like five and six percent uh, is Nigeria growing twelve percent a year no no I think less I think that a lot of these changes in benchmarks political pressures to deliver growth, uh, relying on projections rather than estimates and so forth, tends all to grow up, uh, push the estimates up and and further up. Um, But that does not hide away from the fact that if you look on the total physical amount of uh, goods um, leaving and entering the African continent now compared to two decades ago, there has been growth. Uh, So there has been some growth. How that relates to the unrecorded sectors, how that rec- relates to income inequality and poverty. That's my message we don't know very well. Right. But yes, but let's sidestep that and say, okay, so if we take some of these main macroeconomic patterns uh, as, as, as given, then why is it that development economists uh, somehow neglected uh, or were a- unable to see or abstracted away from economic growth in the 50s, 60s, and the 70s, and yet again used two decades to discover that the African economies were growing. Apparently, these are the experts that have the take the pulse of on the African economy. How could they miss all of this? Uh, and then the explanation goes back to a literature, a cross-sectional growth literature that grew up in the 1990s. Um, and they used as what they call the dependent variable, uh, what needs to be explained, averaged 
GDP growth. Yeah, and the key here is average. So they they then did the world. The world economies grew on average from in the 60s, 70s, and 80s about 3% per capita or something, while the African average was about uh, less than 1%. So there was somehow a minus 2% of growth shortfall, as it was often called, uh, that needed explaining. And the way that this was uh, put into a model was by Barrow, who put up a growth model where you had all the kinds of variables you would like to think affects growth, but then also added what is called a dummy variable so that you get, uh, if if uh, the variable was, uh, the dummy variable took the value one, you were an African country. If you were a non-African country, you took the dummy variable zero. So that meant that when they run the regression, controlling for all factors you would like, there was still a significant, large, negative African continent dummy. The interpretation of that was that there were some characteristics of the typical African economy that impacted growth negatively that was not yet captured. So that's where the economists from page took their impetus from, saying there is a character flaw. Um, they, there is no dummy to speak of if you approach growth differently, as uh, 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 um, uh, rather than to think about it just as average, but to think about it, try to explain why did African economies grow in the 60s and 70s, and why was there a decline in the 1890s, and why is there again... Uh, 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 an acceleration of growth in the past two decades, that's a completely different uh, explanation problem. And I argue that we should maybe work more on looking at trajectories of economic development, what is behind of those, not only clean causal exogenous factors, but trying to, to, to see what's going on. Um, and then, but instead of doing that in the, from the, that was the kind of the, why African economies are growing slowly was the, the first generation of growth literature. And you could have thought that with also contemporary reviews of that literature, which was very um, had mixed views about how useful it had been, how robust it was, and also many people pointing out that that you know things are not well measured. Uh, you're using uh, you say that good institutions is bad for growth, yet you're using observations of institutions taken from the 1990s, which doesn't... So let me just... Sorry to interrupt. So this is quite a startling claim. What you're saying is that there's a whole industry of econometricians mainly, and economists generally, who are trying to explain a problem that doesn't exist. So they're, they're all sitting there with this question of... Why is Africa not growing and the rest of the world is growing? And then yeah. they are running a series of economic analyses that show that it's something to do with institutions or something to do with aid dependency or something to do with um, disease or colonial history, um, all of which are are trying to find statistical explanations for a problem that isn't there. Is that is is that a, a fair characterization of of what of the accusation? I uh, it. It could be, uh, but uh, I'll qualify it a little bit. Okay. Uh, I think that there's no, as I would like, I would like to point out, there is no, there is something that is there. The income difference between Tanzania and Germany is real. Uh, right. That's not invented. That's, that's, not, that's, that's not a failure yeah. of data collection. The no. question is, what is the most useful thing to focus on? Should we explain why there is twenty thousand dollar per capita gap between Tanzania and Germany? How interesting is that of a research question compared to? trying to explain why, why Tanzania's GDP per capita quadrupled over, over the, the 20th century. That's very, very different types of, of, of questions. And instead of realizing that they focus too much on average growth in the, in the early, the first generation of growth literature, we got a new type of growth literature that actually doesn't explain growth at all. It explains differences in GDP per capita instead. It took it as given as it's written down several times, you know, African economies have, a, uh, have a experienced a chronic failure of growth. Our task is to explain why that is. And that's when we got into this literature that tried to find character flaws, uh, things, historical events, geographical events, that made that these nations were thrown down a, a growth path where there was no growth, why they were stuck in, in growth uh, 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 zero growth uh, traps. And, uh, and that's why where we get this literature that emphasizes that why history matters, institutions matters. So, so part of what you say in your book is that many of the things that are used as explanations for why growth is low might actually be consequences of 
low growth. So those might be economic factors like high inflation or high public debt yeah. are, are possible explanations for why growth is low, but they're also possible uh, that, that those could be caused by low growth. And similarly, poor institutions uh, um, could be a, a cause of low growth or they could be a consequence yeah. of low growth. And so part of what you do in the book is you say that you know if you, if you go hunting for explanations of the difference between Malawi and Germany, mm. then you will find all kinds of explanations uh, such as institutions or economic policies and so on that, mm. that are perhaps not the cause of low growth but are actually the consequence of it. But don't econometricians, aren't, aren't they supposed to be correcting for that? Aren't they, aren't they supposed to be looking for causation uh, with all these clever techniques to, to prevent, you know, you're accusing them of making rather an obvious mistake. Well, yes, I am accusing them of making a rather obvious mistake. Um, and I think it's pretty obvious that the mistake is there in the literature if you start reading it. I mean, uh, so both all economists can't be right. So that's the good news. There are right. disagreements among, amongst them. Yeah. So And then can all economists be wrong? Well, maybe so. <laughs> but they surely cannot all be right. Uh, so that, for instance, then uh, Jeffrey Sachs claims that malaria has a negative impact on, on uh, so in the geographic camp, that it has a negative impact, impact on economic growth and therefore income today. Whereas uh, Asamoglu and, and Johnson and Robinson uh, would claim that malaria does not have an effect on income today. It has an effect on institutions yesterday, and institutions uh, do affect income today. So those are two, uh, you know, they, they might be... stories. Yeah, two different stories. They might actually be right about a little bit of these things. But I think that's besides the point. I think uh, whether they have managed to explain... 30% or 60% of the income gap between Tanzania and Germany, it's still not, it's maybe an inter, it tells an interesting story. Some of it is compelling. Uh, it's not very new. This uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa type of arguments is not uh, hardly new. As they also say as well, that these like, oh, it's difficult to be rich in poor country, in hot countries. That's, you know, as old of a development theory you can get. Uh, and the same with, as with development economists, uh, this discipline came together with these claims about colonial and slavery and so forth like that. So it's a kind of rediscovering this that, you know, some countries have a different climate and they have a different history. But then to jump along and say, like, this is the right type of history and this is the right type of, of geography is, is, is not obvious uh, it's not uh, obvious. Uh, it might make sense today. You might find an econometrically stat statistical significant result today. It might not be true in two decades. It might not be true two decades ago. Uh, so you got to question yourself: how much, how much effort should you be uh, uh, be putting on building this kind of literature? Um, partly, so some of the things that concerns me about mm -hmm. it. So one of the things is that is fundamentally built on what I call the subtraction approach. Right. So let's say for a minute that we agree that history and institutions matter. I don't think that's a, a context here. It would be very strange to think that, that, there are not these, that there is only labor and capital floating around this world and nothing else matters. It will be, there are other things. And these are sometimes called history, sometimes called institutions, and can be called lots of different things, so you get to be more specific about it. Going from that intuition and having that intuition is not a major feat, I would think. Uh, but then what the, this literature has done is to measure institutions or history in, in a very specific way. So that you measure the colonial impact as numbers of settlers arriving in the country. You measure the impact of slavery as numbers of slaves exist, exiting countries that did not yet exist. And, and you have also uh, ways about measuring institutions, which is then, we know that institutions matter because they are part and embedded in that political economy they come from, yet the way we measure this in the literature is to measure the institution as something that can be ranked from zero to five, where three is, is medium and two is not so good. Right. Germany is at 4.5, and Tanzania's problem is to go from two potent to, right. to four. So it's measured as the difference between where a country is and being Denmark. Yes. Yeah. So then what you do, in effect, is that you play the, the, the world as a, making it completely flat. It's thinking them as uh, functionally equivalent, that you have the same, that the, the data means the same thing in all countries, and that you can somehow measure 
history or institutions on this uh, scale, uh, on, on, on this metric. And I think that uh, one of the problems you get that is that the subtraction approach, that you get lack of development being explained as lack of something else. So rather than to explain why something happened to Tanzania, you explain why something did not happen to Tanzania. And that's the upside-down world, which, which we are in. in, the, in that's the main paradigm, has been, for a long while, in mainstream economics. And, and we fill that gap by saying they should be more like us, right? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, the, tendon, that's I think, the tendency. I think that as a development practitioner, your main, uh, if you work in this field, I think your main, uh, the, the kind of idea you have to fight the hardest is that when you step off the plane, in Dar es Salaam or Lagos or something, and then go, your gut tells you, ooh, it's different here, let's fix the way it's different, you know, and, and that's the way you shouldn't f- study something. You should figure out why things work like they do. But in, in Africa, in the case of... If your story is that many African countries have, have experienced prolonged periods of growth and then fallen back, for example, after the oil price crisis in the 1970s... Um, there is some explanation to be had of why African countries fell back more and for longer and more permanently and in a, in a more serious way than other countries who also experienced that shock that didn't fall back. So there's still uh, – perhaps you're going to accuse me of still being engaged in a subtraction analysis that I want to know why, why things are going wrong. Mm. But it does seem to me that it is an interesting question to ask why did things go more wrong in the face of a negative shock in some African countries than things went wrong in Europe or the United States in the face of a shock in world markets. So, you know, and don't the same explanations for, for that lack of economic resilience, aren't those explanations the same as the explanations for low growth? You know, it's, it's because of bad policy making poor institutions you know uh, don't you end up in the same doesn't your analysis take you to the same place that if you had more accountable more effective governments less corruption and so on you would have better economic growth but but the the trajectory is different that it, that would explain why these negative shocks had this lasting impact in africa in a way that they didn't have a lasting impact elsewhere uh, no, you don't. You, it's it's very different. It's radically different. Um, the the diagnosis of why growth was slow in the 1980s and 1990s, which then became reaffirmed very strongly by this mainstream economic literature I described and described in the book, uh, coincided with the the policy advice of the World Bank and the IMF and the structural adjustment programs and so forth. I think looking back. It's pretty clear to me, maybe not to everyone, um, pretty clear to me that the, the diagnosis tended to uh, uh, overemphasize the importance of policies, the, uh, overemphasize the, 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 uh, the ability of these governments to affect their own surroundings, uh, the, the overemphasize uh, the importance of institutions and so forth like that. Uh, and they tended to underemphasize the power of world markets. They tended to underanalyze the way in which these economies were integrated in world markets and how much they were depending on prices. And they kept persisting with that type of explanation, although on the face of it, growth was not returning, although you were fixing prices, you were liberalizing and so forth like that, growth was not returning. Yeah? And you moved to saying, oh, it's not the policies, it's the institutions. Yeah? So governance matters. And then but while it was obviously clear that growth, at me, if you look upon this in a 150-year perspective, as I do as an economic historian, growth is likely to return when world markets improve again. Yeah? And they did improve. And growth did return. And there has been growth for a decade, a decade and a half now. Yet the response of, of some of these uh, institutions would be say, saying, look, it worked. Now the policies are fine. Uh, I'm still awaiting, but there will be a literature I'm sure of coming around the corner, which will show correlates between growth and democratization, as if democratization in the past decade caused economic growth. And again, we might be painting ourselves in the same corner that we underemphasize the importance of of, uh, world markets and overemphasize the importance of policies. I think part of that is the main, the, the, the emphasis that economic growth literature gives to, to the policy-enabling environment. It's also the kind of things that 
these institutions can affect. So it has bigger, uh, perhaps uh, more interesting to do something about it. But what's your explanation for why world world markets and the, um, uh, for example, the, the oil price shock had a worse effect in Africa in most African countries, uh, not in the oil producers, than it did in Europe, right? What, it, it's, it's one thing to say, well, the problem here was, was world prices, not local policies, but you still need to explain why the consequence was worse in, in African countries, leading to lower growth on average over time, than in other countries which um, didn't fall so far or rebounded more quickly. So you, there's, still an ex, uh, there's still an explanation to be had of, of why this difference, isn't there? There is, uh, and uh, that would be part uh, pieced together by, by uh, showing how uh, African economies are more, relatively more dependent on exports and imports and, and world market prices, uh, that they were uh, getting loans that were more expensive in the 60s and 70s, um, and that uh, they were engaged in this very structural adjustment uh, pro- uh, program where they were having a long period of stop-start reform, of austerity reforms, uh, which some of them were misguided, some of them were okay, but anyhow, there was a going back and forward. Uh, and it was a period where, if you understand that these uh, political and economic stability in sub-Saharan African economies depends on the availability of rents, uh, rather than to think about only rents as being something that is reducing growth, it might be something that is gen- uh, generating stability. So, in these, if these, if you take it as given that uh, African polities were a bit weaker, a bit, bit less entrenched, there is a good idea why why such an economic downturn might have a more decisive impact on these places when rents disappear almost completely. It might turn into uh, destructive rent seeking, and so then to paint a story across the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, as this was destructive rent-seeking throughout, and these were systems decided to pillage their own uh, populations throughout, would be misleading, uh, because then you would uh, negate the 60s and 70s out of the story, and you would also uh, paint the, the picture that somehow, if we just get rid of institutions that distribute uh, marketing goods, uh, inst- uh, taxation, and so forth. If you get rid of these institutions that distribute rents, which is what states do, then growth will return, uh, which is, uh, um, you know, surely there. I mean, I'm not saying uh, that policy making in sub-Saharan Africa was somehow perfect, but I think to put, it's about putting the emphasis of the, of the explanation in the right place, I think. And so we now are in a period, we think, of more rapid economic growth, in sub-Saharan Africa, and yet our literature about development is still very much literature based on the subtraction principle, on on identifying institutions that African countries don't have Hmm. uh, that would make them look more like us. Do you think that means that we're missing an opportunity to think about how policy should be structured at a time of economic growth? Yes, I think that uh, the emphasis in in the macro uh, economic literature has been uh, on explaining why these economies are failed. Uh, I think there has been an emphasis on on getting clean causal results uh, for and what has been sacrificed has been uh, the uh, the type of research that might generate direct policy advice for the Ministry of uh, Industry or Finance or the Central Bank in Kenya for what to do with growth. So we have tools to explain why they're not growing, but we have very little tools to explain why they're growing and what to do with the growth. So we have a kind of a the overemphasis on the literature is explaining exactly the opposite of what you need to be explaining at the moment. And, and, and part of that is, I mean, it's... It's not. I'm, you know, it would be unfair to say that economists should always focus on what is useful. Uh, they have. They should be geared by their own disciplinary requirements, to and so forth. Uh, so that's not. A, I'm just pointing that out. That there is the an emphasis in the literature that maybe needs to, to be corrected there. Do you have an example of the kind of thing that might uh, that we might be failing to think about and tackle, that we will come to regret in a few years' time? Uh, for not having thought about it at this 
in this period of growth? And in particular, I suppose, are there things that we should be doing now that would, well, not that we should be doing now, that policymakers should be doing now, that would make countries more resilient to the next downturn yeah. so that you don't have the, the repetition of periods of growth and then periods of stagnation? Yeah. No, as I do in the book, I, I advocate strongly for uh, approaching growth as recurring uh, rather than to be failed. And I think that the policy implications, both for a researcher and an actual policymaker, are quite different uh, under the African growth recurring uh, paradigm. That means that you have to make interventions today in order to prepare yourself for a possible downturn, uh, rather than to go and say, look, now you've done all your governance and institutional uh, reforms that all you need, just carry on. Uh, what you actually need to do is to think, you know, how to, to generate industry, how to in, in, uh, increase productivity in uh, uh, agriculture and so forth, and thinking about how those, there are rents becoming available now, but who captures them and where are they reinvested? So, uh, you know, the, in the 60s and 70s, states had labor statistics, they had industrial statistics, they had agricultural statistics. They have institutions that, uh, such as marketing boards that bought and sold food and export crops. They had agricultural, agricultural extension officers who were, uh, work was to deliver uh, technical solutions and so forth uh, to, the, to the countryside. They have uh, development corporations that were taking money that became rents that became available to the state and uh, trying to invest those in, in, in industrial activities. Some of them very unsuccessful and very few of them successful, as it is with public uh, governance. You know, they, there are more failures than successes. The, uh, but I think that what, what's, uh, the problem is that there has been uh, a tendency of writing out 60s and 70s of the history, but also in terms of, of uh, thinking about that we can learn something from the right. policy implications of it. Uh, and so it, we got this idea that the state was the problem, uh, that we, some, someone showed us very convincingly that uh, development corporation can be used by the state to give certain favors to some people and others not. And they showed that an agricultural extension services may mean that some people get fertilizers and others don't. Uh, but that the policy implication from that is not to bereft uh, the, the, the state of all these abilities to, to, to affect its uh, surroundings. Right, so just to, uh, I'm sorry to labour the point, but, but your point there is that if the 60s and 70s were actually a period of growth mm. that then reversed, then we should be learning something about how that growth took place. And all the things that we, um, uh, the policymakers said we should get rid of in the 80s and 90s yeah. might actually have been throwing out institutions that either were successful in, in contributing to that growth or could be successful in the future, in, in future growth episodes. And we've got rid of those institutions or we've encouraged developing countries to get rid of those institutions that might actually be important for making a success of, of periods of growth. Is that, yeah. is, is that a correct summary of what you're saying? Yeah, and not only that, uh, there is also wrong policy implications coming out of the literature as well. That's saying that, uh, you know, institutions matters. Okay, what institutions matter? Private property matters. Uh, or secured property rights is supposed to be in the theory. In the way it's measured becomes risk of expropriation of private property rights. And therefore, Tanzania should now introduce the land titling uh, to all country, uh, to, to everyone in Tanzania. They are doing that. World Bank is financing that. But that's very much taking from the institutions matters type of literature and forgetting that, you know, uh, land rights are only worth anything if the land is worth at least the transaction cost of titling it. Uh, and if there is some kind of financial institution that will serve you and so forth like that, land rights are not all private. There are different ways of getting to institutions like that. It's not, we shouldn't expect, in the, you know, they, they, uh, as in why nations fail, there is this kind of uh, story about Congo, why Congo is so poor today. And, and uh, Asamoglu and, and Robinson tells that it's because they don't have private property rights. And because they didn't have private property rights, they didn't invest in their agricultural land, they didn't introduce the, the plough, and that's why they're poor today. They're not, they're not ploughing a uh, high-productivity agricultural sector. But it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the, you wouldn't plough in Congo for three reasons. Because you don't have cows, they will have sleeping sickness. You wouldn't bother to plough because land is abundant, so it's a waste of time. Uh, so the rational institution is not to plough. And even if you were that stupid to ignore the dying cow and 
and and uh, and the, the fact that land is abundant, so you're just wasting your effort. If you did plow in this area, soil fertility is shallow, so that the fertility soil fertility would disappear in the first rain. So there are this. This is the way of thinking through that one institution matters, the plow and priority property rights, and therefore we need to export it to all kinds of places. So we can learn. We can learn from long-term patterns of economic growth, which was what you were talking about. One of these are that, you know, as I point out in the book, in the late 19th century, Ghana uh, became from a country that didn't produce any cocoa to become the world's largest producing cocoa. And this was an indigenous capitalist reaction. It was not some state or so forth like that. It was not driven by a state securing private property rights. These institutions about how to invest in trees and make sure that these rights were protected were developing as they were needed to be. Um, um, land, a market in land did develop later on as land becomes scarce and so forth like that. So it's a, it is true that institutions matter and that history matters, but we show here that it, they didn't need, in Gold Coast, they didn't need a John Lockean state where everyone has their own private parcel, there is a contract between the individual and the state and so forth. There are different solutions to get to whatever this uh, development state is. So I'm wondering whether you're really challenging the, uh, uh, the, the state of economics uh, as much as you think you are. It seems to me that a lot of development economics uh, has shifted in recent years to studying these micro-questions. Um, the huge boom in randomised controlled trials, um, lots, of, lots of interest in how individual problems are solved at a local level, what we can learn from that, and, and lots of thinking about that. And so I wonder whether your, you know, your critique of you know, Paul Collier and you know, Burnside and Dollar and you know, growth regressions and so on is, is, a, is a criticism of, an out-of-date criticism of an economics profession that has already moved on. Um, how, how, to what extent do you think that um, development economics hasn't understood the points you're making about local evolution of institutions, local, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the circle of institutions and economic growth and policies uh, feeding off each other? It, it seems to me that, that a lot of what you're saying, a lot of people listening to this working in development will be nodding when you talk about, you know, Ghana solving its own problems of how to manage the cocoa trees as something that they've known all along. And this is, this, you know, this is not news to lots of people working in development. Right. I mean, this, this, uh, I, th- I think you're right that there has been a, a kind of a, a movement towards micro and uh, randomized controlled trials and so forth. The book is about macro. It's about um, the big patterns, the big uh, stories that are being told. Uh, I do think that uh, we still are working with the wise Africa failed frame and that is still with us i think we're still uh, in an ep- in a world where we think that uh, institutions can be is a kind of best practice uh, paradigm i think that i think that most of us are people who are caught in both camps that we are, are aware that institutions are belonging to its very particular context at the first half of the day and the second half of the day running regressions pretending that institutions are the same everywhere so i think that i'm not really like expecting a mainstream macroeconomist to open my book and say, oh my gosh, what I have been doing. I'm rather thinking to provide a tool for, for students of, of economics, for PhD students, graduate students, uh, practitioners and so forth, how to deal with these conventional wisdoms uh, that come from, from the economics discipline that are there and everywhere. If you start to think about the biggest kind of uh, conventional wisdoms, uh, conclusions, what have we learned over the past two decades of economic research on growth and patterns of, of growth and poverty, wealth and poverty of nations. These are the kinds of literature that I do criticize and uh, I do show that there are different stories to tell. I think it's also uh, underestimated uh, how, uh, how these wisdoms travel. So you might be very well aware of the weaknesses of how you measure property rights in your own regression, but you're only kind of illustrating a bigger theoretical point in a sense, and you're trying to to show uh, to your tenure committee that you're able to perform within your discipline. 
But that kind of wisdom does not communicate that well outside of the literature. So it's also a correction to, I think that there's no doubt that macroeconomic, although we might say they got a lot of things wrong and that it might be outdated and so forth like that, I think it's still the most powerful message deliver, like the, the main stories we tell, the narratives, the stuff we can read about in The Economist and elsewhere, comes from this work, from macroeconomic literature. And that's why I would provide, I hope that I can provide a, a tool to, not only for macroeconomists, but for a lot of us, how to read economics better, uh, and also how to, to as I said, uh, I would like to, to emphasize that uh, this is, you know, I'm advocating, a, I'm not advocating disabandon, uh, to abandon uh, macro. I think macro is very important. But I think that there needs to be an emphasis on studying economies rather than to study economics. And that means disbanding the, the subtraction approach, the global data sets, and getting serious about studying the co country in question, uh, and mixing, not only only relying on downloaded data sets and uh, the computer and models, but actually to do deep contextual research, interdisciplinary research, if history matters and institutions matters. That's a very interesting paradox. So that means that all that literature that uses global data sets is irrelevant. That means that you, if truly local history and institutions matters, means, okay, so skip doing that type of research. You need to go back to country studies and understand why the land property rights system in Ethiopia works like it does. It's not that interesting that it's different from the one they have in Norway. So these are issues very close to our heart at the Centre for Global Development, understanding the numbers, understanding the evidence, understanding what it tells us, but most of all understanding what policymakers can do uh, and uh, really challenging uh, inappropriate global prescriptions and, and thinking about uh, what's really going on on the ground in individual developing countries. So I want to thank you for your earlier book, Poor Numbers, uh, and for your new book uh, published today, Africa, Why Economists Get It Wrong. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, from the Centre for Global Development, and my guest today has been Morten Jervin. Morten, thanks very much for coming on Development Drums. Thank you, Owen.